You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The German cinema under the Third Reich viewed itself as an ideological alternative to Hollywood. A massive studio funded by the state. It would borrow the conventions of American film and use them as weapons to demonstrate its own superiority. Overseen by Goebbels himself, the films were lavishly produced. Sentimental and poetic, wonderful visions of the future Germany, evoking a sense of national pride, valorizing the wartime spirit of self-sacrifice. Once hidden from American audiences, they teach us about the times in which they were made. What dreams do they reveal? What nightmares do they conceal? Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am coming at you with an interview with Rüdiger Schuschlan, the director of From Caligari to Hitler, and also the director of his latest documentary, which is called Hitler's Hollywood. They're both available now. I highly recommend them. So go ahead and check out this interview and find out why. Tell me a little bit more about you. Tell me your history, because I know that you are a journalist. You've written at least three books that I know of, and I'm curious how you decided to write about film. I studied totally different things. Uh, I studied a little bit of law, but then uh, I studied history and philosophy and political science. And uh, I was, by the way, for half a year as well in Berkeley and did there some courses in intellectual history in general with uh, Martin Jay. Uh, but this is a long time ago. Uh, so most uh, was at, at German universities, most in Munich. And uh, I was not so sure what I would be later in my professional life. I was thinking about uh, writing and working as a journalist. And uh, a little bit um, from in the beginning, as I'm always quite interested in politics, in the beginning I was thinking about being a political journalist. Uh, but then it came out that in the cultural parts, at least of German newspapers, you could uh, write about politics as well, but from a different angle. From a more general angle, uh, mix it a little bit with theory or historical experience and stuff like this. In Germany, we have many newspapers which uh, are like the New York Times or Washington Post or LA Times, something like this. Uh, and uh, But, uh, of course, the media landscape has experienced a certain decline in the last two decades. So I switched more and more to do radio. And uh, for me, film was always a passion, a personal passion. I, I love to go to the movies. I remember I've seen a lot of the classics in the German public TV in my childhood. But uh, even before being a student, I, I uh, loved to go to the movies quite often and uh, see films which I liked more than one time. So I was a bit of a film buff. 
I think, and it uh, came out that uh, I, I had better ideas about movies and uh, and could uh, translate uh, those movies uh, to to uh, let's say general cultural and sometimes even political questions. Uh, uh, and uh, I could not do the same thing with theater or opera or stuff like this. And uh, of course, I'm and sometimes as well reviewing books. But uh, for me, film is not just film. It is about everything, and, and not not just documentary film. Of course, fiction films you can take for as a as a starter to talk about almost everything you want to talk about. So it's as a way a media, a way to to write about different things. But of course, uh, when I'm reviewing the film, first of all, I'm reviewing that, that film, and uh, I love to do this. And I'm doing this more and more uh, for radio. So now I'm uh, most of my time a radio journalist. I'm traveling to a lot of festivals, to the big ones in Europe, like Cannes, Wellness, I'm living in Berlin, but as well I go to San Sebastian in Spain and uh, to Locarno. And as well, I, I love to visit uh, some uh, more apart places, like I've been twice in Buenos Aires, in, in Tehran, uh, in, in Jerusalem, and, and so on. So this is my work. It was more or less by chance that I switched sides and became a filmmaker, because uh, first it was uh, writing an expose. Uh, for uh, my girlfriend is a producer and she is uh, the producer of my films as well uh, so this makes things easier but um, in, uh, it, it started with an exhibition on expressionist art which was more or less centered around the Caligari movie it was in Darmstadt in 2010 and I visited this uh, exposition with uh, three friends uh, from different countries one uh, Turkish friend, one American and uh, one uh, Chilean living in France, and uh, they uh, all they know a lot about films and as well German films. But I realized that they knew more or less nothing about uh, the expressionist uh, style and the expressionist film uh, German filmmaking of the 20s. So this was uh, surprising for me. And uh, for this reason, I, I started writing writing an expose for an Arte documentary. Arte is the cultural channel, the binational channel. France uh, and, and Germany are together in this TV channel. It's quite highbrow. And uh, they uh, were interested in this. And uh, this, uh, this project developed into, uh, in a way, two films. One was just for TV. It is in the IMDb, but I'm not sure. I think it's an additional material on a DVD. Uh, it's something like a making of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and 50 minutes film, quite TV-like. And the other one is uh, the first uh, documentary for the cinemas, uh, From Caligari to Hitler. I borrowed the Krakauer title. And uh, so uh, here I could do, I, I could put my interests together, the interest for history interest for movies, for film, and as well for philosophy in a way, as Siegfried Krakauer, who wrote the book From Caligari to Hitler in New York in the 40s, uh, he was a philosopher and he was a film critic. Uh, so this was perfect for me. And uh, the other film, Hitler's Hollywood, which uh, is coming out now on DVD, this uh, film um, developed, it was, it was kind of a natural follow-up because uh, when you finish with uh, 
the Weimar, the end of the Weimar Republic and the rise of uh, Hitler uh, to power and uh, fascism in Germany, of course, you want to know what happened to cinema then. What happened to the guys uh, who were working uh, in, in Germany in, in the film business? And how did the Nazis uh, change the German cinema? As uh, we Germans, we, uh, we look at cinema in the way that uh, this uh, beginning of 1933, when in January Hitler came to power, is a big, big uh, break uh, because uh, many, many people had to flee the country immediately. Others were imprisoned in the camps, many of them killed. So everything changed, and in a way, uh, the German cinema never recovered from from this moment, from this wound, uh, as uh, many or most of the filmmakers which uh, did uh, emigrate to Hollywood, they didn't come back. So uh, it's a big loss. And uh, as well, certain genres, certain styles uh, did not come back after uh, Hitler was... Uh, was dead and and uh, democracy came back to Germany, but uh, the, this this uh, genres and this part of filmmaking didn't come back, and for that reason we we have good cinema now, but it's not on the same level like it used to be in the twenties when uh, when uh, German cinema was one of the best in the world and well known all over the world, and even Hollywood borrowed a lot of uh, German cinema in that time. When was that first time that you read Krakauer uh, from? Caligari to Hitler. The first time, um, it's it's a thick uh, volume. Uh, the the first time I did not read the whole book. It is it works. It worked more like a uh, like a book where you could look up uh, certain uh, ideas about uh, those films. I think the first time must have been. It was not during my my studies. And uh, during my studies, I read other texts of Krakauer. He was uh, working as a journalist in Berlin and Frankfurt of the 20s and early 30s. And uh, it is quite interesting if, uh, for, for many reasons for how to write about film, uh, for, uh, for the, in a way, if you want to grab some of the atmosphere, let's say the taste of the 20s. I think that Krakow is one of the best guys to read. Uh, so I, I love to read his small essays and pieces for the paper. And the big book, I think, first of all, I, I uh, read certain passages on uh, certain chapters on, on movies in uh, theater programs when during the 90s I was, uh, I was living in Munich in that time and the Film Museum of Munich is one of the best in Germany. And I remember they were showing... Uh, some uh, of the films of the Weimar Republic. And I think I saw the first time I saw the Nibelungen by Fritz Lang. I saw People on Sunday, and uh, yeah. which immediately I fell in love to this film. And uh, I think in this time uh, I read the first uh, chapters in Krakow and I bought the book. And then it uh, became something where I was uh, quite regularly coming back to and uh, the whole uh, book um i was uh, when i was doing my first film i was reading the whole book from the beginning to the end well how did you decide that that was going to be your first film how did you say i'm going to take some of krakauer's ideas and work them into this documentary i mean cuz that's a, a pretty i mean from 
Caligari to Hitler is an, an incredibly impressive work. I'm talking about the film and the book, but just there's so much that went into that. That must have been a pretty momentous decision for you. In a way, as I'm a journalist, I'm uh, used to uh, take fast decisions and uh, to take certain risks. In a way, it was, uh, I realized, there was never done a film about the Weimar cinema. For, for Of course, there were films, uh, let's say, a 30-minute piece on Lubitsch or something like this, but not a film which took the whole uh, Weimar cinema together. And I knew there is this book. I was checking that, uh, the, I, I know that this book is well known. It's even better known in the U.S. and in uh, Latin America and Spanish language than it's in Germany. It's uh, well known as well in France. So uh, it was a good uh, a good label. And uh, in the same time, there was, I think, in the MoMA in New York, in the cinema, there was uh, a Weimar section on, on Weimar films and a program on Weimar cinema. And I uh, remember I, I read it in the, the Internet that they took, they borrowed the title of Krakow. And, of course, it is a good title. And then, uh, this is might, might sound superficial there is a deeper reason the deeper reason is that i always uh, i i love the critical theory in general let's say marcuse adorno Löwenthal, benjamin and krakauer and i know their general approach which is to connect culture and politics to ask for deeper uh, tendencies in culture to look behind the curtain and uh, behind the surface so this approach is important, and uh, for me it's important to interpret cinema as well for hidden messages, for hidden, uh, let's say, it's subconsciousness uh, uh, signals, and to take, it, to take cinema as a seismograph for the cultural um, subconsciousness. And this is what Krakauer is doing, so his approach his general approach. You can you can argue a lot about certain ideas he had about uh, specific movies, uh, but it's not about that. The general approach is very important, I think, for us, and we can easily take this approach, for instance, and look at uh, at uh, the cinema of today. Uh, it, it, I, I did write later. I did write when uh, Donald Trump. Uh, now we have to mention him. When Donald Trump came into power. I was writing a piece for a Spanish newspaper for El País. Uh, I wrote it in English. They translated it. Um, a piece on uh, from uh, Joker to Trump, because if you take those uh, personalities, uh, like Joker in the Batman movies, like uh, the the character of Gordon Gecko in Oliver Stone's Wall Street like the David Fincher character in David Fincher's film The Game, the Michael Douglas character in David Fincher's The Game, and uh, some other businessman, even you can take Iron Man. You can see the tendencies of a behavior uh, of a gambler who is gambling with the whole world, and everything is a big game for him. This, this uh, stereotype character, I think, uh, appears in American cinema, decades before uh, this kind of character came into the white house the white house yeah so you can you can interpret cinema in this way and uh, at least it makes uh, it makes ideas visible and uh, it helps to understand what's happening i think in society and in culture 
And so coming back to Krakow, we can learn this if we study Krakow. And uh, of course, he was as well a very good writer. He had uh, many good ideas about certain films. When you read what uh, he wrote, for instance, about as well about Nazi cinema in, in Hitler's Hollywood, I'm, I'm quoting Krakow again, because in the MoMA, when he was preparing his book on Weimar cinema, he was as well reviewing, I think for the American government, reviewing Nazi cinema and writing studies on mass uh, manipulation, mass culture, on the so-called authoritarian character. They were preparing already the re-education policy of the late 40s and early 50s. They were planning, uh, the American government was planning uh, during the war, what would they do the day after, after it ended. And many of the emigrants, which were anti-fascists, of course, and Democrats, many of those emigrants, uh, like Hannah Arendt, like Herbert Marcuse, like uh, all those people which were working in the New York School of Social Research, which were working as well in the Frankfurt School, and others, they helped uh, in, in planning, in the planning process of this re-education, because they knew Germany best. After From Caligari to Hitler is done, I'm curious what the thought process is for you to say, now I'm going to tackle the next period, now I'm going to look at that after 1933 and what happens to the cinema, because I couldn't imagine that that's an easy decision, because just like with Caligari to Hitler, it's another momentous project. There are many big differences. Uh, one, one first difference is quite a personal one that in my studies, uh, history studies at the university, I, uh, I took a lot of lessons about Weimar Republic and uh, about uh, general, the, the decades before 1933. But I, uh, for, it's, it's hard to tell why exactly, but I always avoided the times of Hitler. I did not want uh, to, to um, of course I'm curious, but I did not want to spend too much time with those ugly and, and evil times. But, um, of course, as I said before, when you do the film until uh, the moment when Hitler comes to power, it's, it's a natural process. You want to know more and you want to see the change. And then as well, um, the, the other big difference, of course, is the quality of the cinema. The Nazis had cinema of good quality, but it is not as as brilliant as the Weimar cinema is. And so for that reason as well, those films are not as uh, well known. And many of the masters, directors, masters, but as well producers and great actors, they emigrated or they were not allowed to work under the Nazis. And then we have to see that the cinema was not free from the first day on, the cinema was a state-controlled cinema, and uh, the, the Nazi system under Minister Goebbels, they, uh, they in a way, they uh, wanted to perfectionate manipulation. Uh, they, want, they, used cine they wanted to use cinema as the privileged media to manipulate the people, and to uh, to spread propaganda, to spread their message uh, through the whole uh, society. And only radio was the other mass cinema. We had no TV in that time, remember that. We had no internet. So cinema, specifically sound cinema, which was only two or three years old uh, when Hitler came to power, 
uh, sound cinema was the new media of that time. So uh, they as well, they needed to get some experience in this new media, but uh, they the media was very interesting for everyone. So those who controlled this new media, they could control in a way the minds of the people. And uh, so uh, the, the big question in, in the second film, in Hitler's Hollywood, is totally different. It's much more a political question. The, the big question is how did propaganda work? How did they do it? In the Weimar cinema, there's, uh, it's not about propaganda. It's not about taking the cinema, the, the, the films, for their political impact. For their political impact, yes, but not for their political, their open political message and the hidden messages. Of course, you can analyze the films. You will find a lot of things, but it's totally different. We have in, in the Nazi cinema, we have one big messenger. This is Goebbels and the Nazi party. And uh, they they changed, they found different ways to bring the message under the people because propaganda is not a very one-sided thing. Propaganda has to, has to change together with the target of propaganda. As sometimes the target of the propaganda it was Germany, sometimes it was foreign countries. Sometimes it were those people who were already convinced and fanatic Nazis. Then uh, the, the target were the undecided people or the skeptics. And sometimes the target, of course, were the, the enemies of the Nazis. And so you have to spread temptation in the same moment when you have to spread fear. So we have some films spreading fear and and uh, and uh, bringing fear into the society, and then of course uh, they had a lot of entertainment films which were made in a way as a part of escapism that the people did not think about politics, did not think about moral questions, did not think about a war to come, and all this. So. Uh, it's uh, quite a complicated system, and uh, I was trying to analyze the system and to describe it and to show different facets of the system, which we can see in the films. How many films were they turning out a year during this time? And I imagine they might have slowed down production as the war went on, or was that not the case? I think it was, uh, at least at the beginning of the war, it was not the case. On the contrary, in general, uh, you, we can say that it were more or less 100, 100 films per year. It is, uh, uh, we have uh, the number of uh, 1,100 or 200 films as well. It depends a little bit uh, which films you count because we have in 1933 and as well in 1945 when uh, the Nazi regime ended, we have some films which uh, were started in the society before and 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 uh, through the transition of the system they were finished in the society after after the transition and uh, but in general it's more or less 100 films per year and uh, with the war first of all they needed more films for a very simple reason uh, because they could not show any more films from foreign countries at the beginning they could show films from the US because the US entered the war in 1941, in December. Uh, so until the year 1941, many Hollywood films were shown in Nazi Germany, as some Nazi films were shown in the U.S. 
uh, and one of the biggest stars of the Germany under the Nazis was Shirley Temple, because people loved Shirley Temple as a children, as a child star in, in her first Hollywood movies. Um, as well, we know that Hitler, for instance, loved Disney films. He loved Mickey Mouse. And uh, once, I think in 1936 or 7, uh, Goebbels uh, gave him the present of uh, 12 uh, Mickey Mouse films for Christmas. Yeah, it's, it sounds bizarre. Uh, short films, of course. So, uh, but these are only anecdotes. Um, in, in general, uh, during the war, the Nazis needed films as well to entertain the people, to distract the people, sometimes as well to motivate them as a part of the propaganda system, and as well they needed those films for the occupied territories, because the film industry in territories like the Netherlands, like France, after 1940, collapsed. And uh, but But the occupied people... <laughs> they they wanted to distract them. They wanted to entertain them. So uh, for those reasons as well, uh, films and entertainment films were media, were a good way to do this. And of course, uh, as well, we have to, we cannot underestimate the propaganda effect of those films. In a way, like uh, if we want to compare this with Hollywood, like Hollywood films are spreading the American way of life through the world, in all countries. The, the Nazis tried to do the same. They wanted to show the German way of life, the Nazi way of life. They wanted to show, in our country, people can live good, of course, if they are white and uh, not Democrats and no Jews. Uh, and in our country, we have happiness, we have peace, we have order, we have clean streets, no criminals, and all stuff uh, like this. Of course, many of those messages were lies, but uh, they wanted to spread those lies about the German way of life uh, in, into the world, and they wanted to build up an alternative Hollywood. Therefore, the title of my film is Hitler's Hollywood. Of those 1,100 films, roughly, how many do you uh, estimate that you ended up watching? Some of them I could not watch because uh, they they no longer exist or they exist only in parts. And uh, as well, it is always a bit uh, a question we can discuss hours and hours. Uh, we, how, we, how do you count those films? Some of the films are incomplete. Some of those films are not long features, only uh, 50 minutes or sometimes even, even shorter. I did not count the short films, of course, and not uh, those advertisement films and newsreels. So the 1,100 films, roughly, they are more or less long feature and long documentary films, or so-called documentaries, because a Riefenstahl a film on the Reichsparteitag, on the party convention, is not a documentary in the way we would call it's a documentary, it's a propaganda piece, and everything is designed for the effect. So, um, uh, some of those films uh, which still exist, uh, we could not use for for uh, law reasons. Uh, we were not allowed to use it. For example, the Riefenstahl film on Olympia, which is uh, the Olympic Games of '36, which is uh, this film, the right holders are is the International Olympic Committee, and it is a very expensive film. And as well, they, they do not give out this film uh, so easily. 
because they did, don't like the connection of Olympic Games with Nazis. We can imagine that, but it is, uh, in a way, I think it is a shame that uh, during those years it's more or less not possible to use the material. So, uh, and and then of course I needed to watch those films, and I tried to. Uh, I, I, I tried to find, uh, of course, some films I had to take, like Hitler, Junge, Quacks, for example, or Jesus. Uh, there was not no question about. We had to show extracts of those films, and we had to integrate those films in uh, in a documentary on Hitler cinema. Uh, but other films, lesser known films, and. Uh, lesser representative works, uh, on the surface at least, those films I had to, to watch a lot of and I had to compare and uh, find good extracts. I think I did watch something like 250 films, more or less, and uh, of course as well many newsreels and, and uh, smaller pieces, uh, some, some uh, uh, private, uh, private pieces as well because uh, we uh, I, I always tried, uh, as well in, in the other films I made before, I tried to connect the films made for cinema and uh, the uh, material of the film industry. I tried to connect with the historic events and with the uh, daily daily life. So I needed some images for moving images for daily life. And uh, I, I integrated some newsreels in, in the documentary. So... Uh, but fiction films, I think, between 200 and 250. And uh, it's, I think it's something like around 70 films which ended in, the, in, in uh, my documentary at the end with small extracts most time, but at least. Now, in the United States, just over the last few years, really, there's been a lot of discussion about the glorification of some of the darker days of our past, all of the struggles to remove some of the monuments dedicated to some unpleasant ideas. And I know Germany had its own laws in, put in place to not glorify the Nazi past. Were there any films that you couldn't actually show or get your hands on? I know you talked about kind of the legal rights when it came to Olympiad, but were there other like more hardcore propaganda films where you're just like, we can't show this? From those uh, more than 1,000 films made in the Third Reich, there are still uh, 40 films which are under restriction. They are not forbidden. There is no censorship in Germany. But if you want to show extracts of those films, and uh, the, most, uh, the most famous of them is Jesus, uh, if you want to show extracts of those films, uh, you have to write a letter and to explain what you want to do and why you want to show those uh, those parts. So um, uh, this was quite easy for us because we were working together with the German Film Archive, uh, the Murnau Foundation, which is uh, responsible for all those uh, restricted films. So it was only one time an explanation of what we wanted to do. And when the Murnau Foundation was in, it was quite easy. Uh, in general, um, no, there were no problems of this kind, of uh, no political or censorship restriction. Um, in two or three cases, sometimes we, uh, for in, but for other reasons, we had to explain what we wanted to do. And in one case, uh, which is the film Münchhausen, which was written by the writer Erich Kästner, who was uh, not a Nazi, he was an anti-Nazi, 
but he had to uh, he needed work and he had to work under a false name for the German film industry because uh, officially he was banned but they wanted to use his qualities <clears throat> there uh, the, the I had to uh, in the credits at the end the, the final credits of my movie I had to put in a small explanation for those who don't know it that Erich Kästner was not a Nazi just to be be on the safe side but this was uh, a personal wish by the grandson of Kästner and uh, it's easily to fulfill no in general it, it is uh, quite easy to get access if you can explain what you want to do of course uh, the government uh, and the Monau foundation the German film archive they are afraid Specifically now, when we have a kind of rise of a new right extremist party, which is even in the Bundestag, uh, of course, uh, it must be clear that uh, a film is not even uh, for uh, serving for the wrong causes, not even uh, because uh, against its own wish. Sometimes out of stupidity uh, you serve the wrong boss. And uh, of course, uh, this you have to make clear. But uh, in, in general, uh, it was not so difficult for us to do this. I think it was very clear for everyone involved that we were on the right side. We wanted to do a film uh, for education, of course, for entertainment as well. But we don't want to entertain uh, the people in spreading wrong messages or manipulate them like the Nazis did. Uh, we can. I, I'm very trustful that it's possible to entertain people with the truth and uh, with uh, some kind of, let's call it, enlightenment. Uh, uh, so it's enlightenment as entertainment, I hope to do in my film. We've talked a little bit about kind of the various levels of propaganda. And there are films, you know, you mentioned Judd Suess, that is really one type of propaganda. And I'm curious, did you ever watch something where you said, well, this feels like very light entertainment. And then the more you thought about it, the more you're like, well, actually, this is telling almost more of an insidious message than something as outright propagandistic as Judge Seuss. Yes, absolutely. And uh, what you just described is exactly the way Goebbels did it. Because uh, the propaganda minister of propaganda, he did not like propaganda. He did not like the obvious propaganda. For instance, Goebbels did not like Riefenstahl. Um, and he, he uh, always uh, intervened in the process when uh, some of, uh, of the members of his staff were too fanatic, were too obvious pro-Nazi, uh, because he knew that uh, propaganda, if it's obvious, is very boring. Uh, Goebbels wanted to bring propaganda which is more or less invisible, in, an, in a way which is more or less invisible. And he, he wanted, uh, it's, it's kind of a hidden poison which uh, you just realize when it's too late. So uh, most of the Nazi cinema was entertainment cinema, sometimes musicals, adventure stories, but as well the big melodramas. And we know that a uh, filmmaker who was absolutely not a Nazi in uh, any political way, Douglas Sirk, under his German name, Detlef Sirk, he did uh, eight films for uh, Mr. Goebbels before he left the country and came to Hollywood and started his career there. And he made, more or less, in Hollywood, he made, this was a big surprise for me, he made more or less the same melodramas uh, with uh, women uh, suffering, uh, 
under the circumstances and as well under the wrong man quite often. Uh, he, he could tell more or less the same stories in Hollywood which he could tell before in the Nazi cinema. We have a lot of films where the, in, in Nazi cinema where the propaganda message is hidden is absolutely not obvious. And it's uh, part of the task to decipher those films, to show certain motifs, certain cliches and styles. Uh, and uh, some, uh, I think we, we can say this in English as well, the leitmotif, like in music. Uh, we have uh, this idea that, uh, for instance, the death wish. Many Nazi films are about death are about a good death or a sweet death and uh, a justified death. And uh, But death is nothing for entertainment. It's nothing funny. So the big challenge for the filmmakers was to, to pack this death idea into kind of to give some candy with it, some sugar, and make it digestible. Because the... the, the the aim of those films was to prepare the people to die, to prepare the people to die in the war, to die for Hitler, and uh, to send the children into war, meaning to let them die, uh, quite often at least. And uh, as well, some uh, some part of those films were to justify murder, so to tell, to, to give examples in the films why it can be good to kill someone. And uh, we have those films, and Jutsus, Jutsus is just the most uh, well-known of them, but we have many films where it is more or less explained why uh, sometimes it's good to, for instance, to kill a handicapped child or some something like this. So um, it was, for me, the most interesting films um, are two types. Um, one or let's say three. One is the melodram, because uh, those kind of melodrams, for example, by Veit Harlan, are not easy to understand, because the, we have to translate the feeling of the 40s uh, and in, in a war situation uh, into our feelings, and that's not so easy uh, to understand how did people in that time, 70 years ago, see and watch those movies. Uh, the two other types are uh one one uh, there are some filmmakers Helmut Keutner is the most famous of them who kind of slipped through the censorship ideas of uh, Goebbels uh, and uh, who made uh, films which were almost part of resistance as well in my film we can see uh, this uh, movie by uh, Georg Wilhelm Papst uh, Paracelsus, which is a medieval or renaissance story about an, a doctor and uh, a rationalist in a very irrational situation. And uh, this is the hero. And in a way, uh, his film, Papst's film Paracelsus, is a film where he is kind of decoding propaganda and explaining how manipulation works. And it's quite interesting that the censors of Goebbels uh, did not realize what they were showing there. Or maybe I'm, I'm wrong, and maybe they absolutely realized, but they thought we can show this to demonstrate how open-minded we are. Uh, and, and this is as well hard to understand. 
So uh, it's quite interesting to see some of those filmmakers working in the system in a way against the system. And uh, and then, of course, there are certain films uh, which, even after all this work, I'm not absolutely sure what to think about. Uh, for instance, the film Großstadt Melody, which is, uh, I, I call in my film, maybe the most feminist film in Nazi cinema, uh, because it's about... Uh, 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 young women, a photographer who's moving into the big city of Berlin, making career. Uh, she is uh, quite independent. He is, she is single. Uh, she's working with men, but she has uh, so far not any love story or even affair, love affair with uh, any of those men. So in a way, she's absolutely not uh, serving to the Nazi ideal of a woman which must be uh, oriented in finding a man and being a mother as soon as possible, uh, and uh, and of course she is. This film, which is made in '43, uh, shows more or less no signs of propaganda. They don't show any of uh, the the um, Nazi flags and Nazi symbols. And uh, they are not, uh, in, in many films, we have certain stereotypes. And all those stereotypes are lacking in, in this movie. The director is Wolfgang Liebeneiner, who was the boss of the UFA. And he was maybe not a servant Nazi, but he was a total ice-cold opportunist. Uh, so it was not uh, that he wanted to, in a way, that he wanted to to uh, bring any hidden anti-Nazi message. This was not the case. It was more that he wanted to do something different. And uh, at the end, in the last 10 minutes of the film, we have everything which was lacking in the 80 minutes before. We have a lot of propaganda. So uh, it is quite, you, can, you can read this film in a way that it was just a better way to give the message. But as well... Uh, it is something like the last 10 minutes are something like an ob just a cheesy obligation and a demonstration. Okay, now at the end, I give you what you want. I give you what I have to give, but I'm not interested in all that. So in a way, it was a symbol of the independence of this director. And I think we can read this film, Großstadt Melody, in both directions as a kind of distance to the usual... Nazi entertainment cinema, and as well of as in uh, we can read it as a better and more intelligent example of that. And as well, I, I wonder how people in 1943 would have looked at this movie because they see a lot of Berlin uh, images for pre-war Berlin, and uh, they were when they were sitting in the Berlin cinemas in that time. Many of the buildings they can see in the in the movie were already destroyed, so they see as well a peace life which was already gone, and uh, so you can see in this film as well what the Nazis had destroyed. So you can read it as a critic. So this is one of the films where we have many uh, and and quite a complicated message, and it's not so easy to be clear about what this film wanted, why did they do it, and, and for what purpose. Well, that brings up a very interesting question for me is, was there much film criticism or, or writing about film in Germany at this time? No, 
because um, Goebbels uh, forbid film criticism quite uh, early when he was on power. He said there is no more film criticism now. Uh, the only thing which was which was allowed was film description, so a more or less uh, um, pseudo objective description because uh, definitely it was not objective if we read those texts, they are propaganda texts uh, as well, and definitely uh, all those writings were censored, like all the newspapers were censored. There were in some of the more liberal more uh, bourgeois. Uh, papers like the Frankfurter Zeitung, which was, of course, as well censored, and no Jewish writers were allowed and all this, but it could uh, maintain uh, in a certain independent state or half, let's say, half independent state. There were some reviews of the film, but it were uh, of those films which came out, but it was more or less not possible to criticize those films because they were made by the government and they were already censored by Goebbels. And uh, if Goebbels wouldn't have liked those films, uh, we would never see them. Uh, he forbid a lot of films, even when they were made and they were finished. And before uh, Goebbels and his staff, uh, they were looking through all the scripts they were part of the casting process, so they decided who would shoot the film as a director, which scriptwriters would work together, and of course, which uh, actors uh, would play the, the main roles. So in a way, uh, Josef Goebbels was the one big studio boss of the Third Reich cinema, and uh, you might call him the David O. Selznick of Hitler's Hollywood. Well, you talked about some of the genres that were forbidden and some of the ones that they seem to embrace, which definitely melodrama was, uh, sounds like it was very popular. Were there any other genres that were allowed during that time? Um, yes, uh, of course. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, quite clear war movies and historic, uh, historical movies, period pictures. Uh, I mean, about more or less good Germans, famous Germans. They could be kings and knights. They could be war heroes. They could be scientists, which were bringing progress uh, to mankind. Uh, we have a film about Rembrandt, the painter. Uh, maybe you would think he's a Dutch painter, but in uh, Hitler's and Goebbels' uh, race, uh, a matrix, uh, Dutch, uh, where as well Germanic tribes, so part of the big German culture. Uh, as well, we have uh, films about uh, Schiller, uh, a writer and famous, very famous writer of the time of, of Goethe. And, uh, and uh, Schiller wrote some theater pieces which were quite popular and, and were used and misused as well by the Nazi propaganda. Uh, he could be seen as a fervent nationalist writer, and the film is picking him uh, like that. Uh, it was as well this idea of a genius, because uh, we must remember that Hitler himself was... Uh, was seen in the propaganda. The, the propaganda image of Hitler was Hitler is a genius. So if uh, the cinema would show, the, the films, fiction films would show other geniuses, they would always 
in the same moment reflect on the idea what does it mean to be a genius and reflect on Hitler as being a genius. So, for instance, in this Schiller film, uh, we can uh, we can discover uh, discourse on geniality and of what how is a genius. Uh, developed and how can he be should he be educated or should he be free should he be limited of course he should be unlimited because it's a genius and and this is the idea which uh, propaganda is spreading as well uh, there is a film on the racist boers in south africa om kruger which is uh, anti-british and uh, pro-racism uh, and pro-slavery, uh, and which is in a way um, a propaganda piece for the colonization of uh, of other parts of the world. So you might call it a propaganda piece for the Second World War. And uh, so we have those period pictures. Uh, we have, uh, I said before, I think adventure films. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we don't have many criminal stories because, in a way, crime does not exist in Germany in the propaganda idea of Hitler. Um, uh, if crime exists, it, is, uh, it exists in other countries, like in England or in France. And uh, sometimes there are films where the criminals are Germans and there are no criminals, but first uh, they are seen as criminals, but then through the film story it comes out that they are not criminals but heroes. Uh, interestingly enough as well, we have many uh, imposters, uh, like the Count Münchhausen, the lying baron, uh, because he was always telling stories which were totally over over the top and lies, but obvious lies and funny lies. So we have good liars, positive liars, and uh, we have as well the imposters uh, in the beginning of my film. It starts with uh, the film, with an extract of the film, The Man Who Used to Be Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so it's not about Sherlock Holmes, but it's about a man who's posing as Sherlock Holmes. And he's a German, uh, a small uh, criminal uh, who is uh, working in England. The story tells that he does a lot of good things, but being a criminal, so it's not so important that he's a criminal because he's doing important good things. So all these films, if we if we take those characters, and we have a lot more, if we take them together... Uh, the picture is quite obvious. We can see that lie can be a good thing sometimes in Nazi cinema. That being an imposter, uh, posing as another person which you are not, uh, lying to people, giving, uh, using a false identity and so on, having secrets, all this can be good things if you do it for the right course. And, and this is, I'd say, one of the most important messages in Nazi cinema. It is the message, a uh, kind of uh, making the system of moral values kind of fluent and unsecure, of, of irritation, a system of irritation, questioning moral values. Then, of course, we, we can see in those films, like in those many entertainment musicals, which are usually playing in the theater, in a theater, or 
uh, around a music band, uh, about singers, and uh, in, the, in the world of stage. So we, we see that those entertainment films, which are in fact as well propaganda films, they make it quite obvious what propaganda means, because propaganda is not about lying. Propaganda is about telling the truth in a different way. And this is a lesson for our days as well, living in times of fake news, that propaganda, good propaganda, is not lying, at least not obvious. It, it tries to give a lot of truth, but change as well the context of the truth. So we have in those in those theater films, in those musicals, we have always a stage where you have a person which is an actor or a singer playing something, someone, uh, a role, and then behind the curtain, behind the role, there's truth. So we see the world is always a divided world. There is the world of uh, of uh, the stage and of the lies and of the false characters of playing a role. And behind that, there's the private life of the truth. And we have as well, we have not just the actors on stage and singers, but we have as well the audience. And the audience is always applauding. And we see the audience like we see today when there's, for instance, a Rolling Stone concert. We see uh, the concert and the musicians, and then we see cut to the audience. So we see ourselves, and we see in the audience how we have to behave. So uh, there is a complicated uh, system of looks, looking to the audience, looking to the stage, and uh, looking to the place behind the stage, which is uh, always giving the message that stage and lies and playing a role is part of life. And applauding is the role of the audience. And uh, now with those uh, examples, we can we can relook to Leni Riefenstahl's party convention film, where we have as well it's a documentary in a way documenting the real party convention, but editing it of course in a propaganda way with a lot of music, new music. But what we can see there is as well we have one star on stage, Hitler, and then we have the audience, hundred thousands in Nazi uniform, applauding and serving to this kind of worshipping. It's like uh, going to church on Sunday, but it's uh, the church of the devil, of course. You talked about making the way that they would make films for specific countries once they were annexed. And how quickly would they ramp that up? I mean, were they making films for France after Germany annexed France? Yes and no. They were, uh, first of all, many of those uh, German films were shown in France then. Uh, they were uh, subtitled. This is very easy to do this. And uh, the dubbing dubbing was not uh, the culture of that time. Uh, sometimes it, they were dubbed as well, but in general it was about subtitle, making subtitles. And then, of course, uh, in France, where they had a very good existing film industry, uh, they tried to collaborate with the, the existing French film industry, and some people did collaborate and others did not. Um, uh, they, there, there is a very famous French film, or there are many, of course, but the most famous French film uh, of that time is Les Enfants du Paradis. Uh, it is, what is the English title of it? Children of Paradise. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe this, yeah, maybe children of, maybe children of paradise, of course, this would be a literal translation. Uh, so, as well, by the way, a film about stage and theater. And, uh, and this is a film, uh, which is, uh, which, which has a lot of big, important French stars in it, uh, but it's as well a film which is totally about distraction and of giving a certain atmosphere of that time, let's say a certain melancholy, uh, and uh, kind of, uh, it is not a film uh, to motivate the audience for any kind of revolution or resistance. It is more a melodrama, uh, a melancholic melodrama, uh, motivating the audience to be very passive. So, but France is not the typical example because France had a good, big existing film industry. For other countries, uh, they, they were showing more or less only German films in other countries, like in the Netherlands, like in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. And as well, they were shooting in those countries. In Czechoslovakia, when the war came closer to the German Heimat front, the home front, uh, and for example, Hamburg was already bombarded uh, by the Allied forces and Cologne as well, uh, there was a growing danger that the film could not be finished in Germany. So they were trying to go out of Berlin to the south of Germany, to Munich, and to the southeast of the Reich, meaning to Austria and to Czechoslovakia. And many films were done in the Czechoslovakian studios. As well, films Große Freiheit Nummer 7, for instance, is a film which is, uh, was shot at the beginning in Hamburg and which is set in Hamburg. But the Hamburg of this film is 80% artificial, uh, rebuilt in uh, the Prague studios. Were the rules that uh, were being set down as far as what could be shown and what couldn't be shown, were those ever codified? Were those written down? Not officially, because this would reveal uh, propaganda, and uh, it was not about revealing the secrets. Um, it is it is maybe interesting to tell that uh, of course Goebbels uh, was uh, he was kind of genius of propaganda, but not everything fell from heaven. He learned he learned from uh, Soviet propaganda films like Eisenstein and Berthoff. He loved Eisenstein's uh, Potemkin, Battleship Potemkin, uh, even when it was a communist propaganda film. But he learned a lot how to do it. Uh, he loved uh, as well uh, the, the Fritz Lang. He offered Fritz Lang a job in the Nazi cinema, but Fritz Lang refused. But he loved his film Nibelungen, and he loved Metropolis, and uh, as well he respected uh, a film like M, Murder in the City. I'm not sure what is exactly the title, but you will know the film for sure. It was Peter Lorre. And then, as well, he learned uh, by uh, by the book of Edward Bernays. The, I think he was the the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he emigrated as a very young man to the States, and he was working in advertisement advertisement business. And he was uh, he had read a book in the late twenties with the title "On Propaganda." You all will find it in the net because it's uh, it's for free. It's uh, public. Uh, how do you say this public domain? So you can just download uh, this book in PDF. It's in English. So uh, I, I'm not sure there was a German translation, but I guess so. And if not, uh, he read it in English. Uh, and this is kind of a, uh, a ready-made uh, how-to-do propaganda. 
but for sure, advertising propaganda. And he just uh, transferred this into politics. And he learned a lot by Bernays. And uh, so um, here you have some kind of system of propaganda. And we know that, for instance, Eisenstein wrote uh, down, and as well some other Russian filmmakers, Soviet filmmakers, quite famous is the so-called Kulashov effect, which means if you combine two images, uh, let's say you combine food and then you combine a smiling face, uh, we would imagine, oh, he likes the food. If we could, uh, if and we, and we have a good uh, kind of, uh, we are in a good mood. You, you can combine, of course, the smiling face with something else, not food, but with uh, drink, whiskey. Then you think, oh, he's smiling because he's drunk, and not because he likes something. And of course, you can change as well uh, the smile into a distasteful uh, uh, image of a distaste of a, of a face full of distaste, and uh, this, this would mean, okay, the food is not good. It's rotten or something like this. So what what this Kulashov effect means is that you can, with montage, you can do a lot of things. You can manipulate very easily. And this kind of montage rules uh, were as well written down in film theory texts of the 20s and 30s, and uh, Goebbels used it. So there we have some written down rules. And then we have the speeches by Goebbels, and uh, in some of those speeches, he's uh, they're quite revealing because they are sometimes aggressive, in a way which uh, was not usual usual way of Goebbels to talk. People who knew him said he was always kind of friendly and calm and nice, uh, in a way. But when he was enraged, uh, and then then we see uh, how aggression is uh, coming out of his body and through his voice. If we read uh, in, in some of the texts, uh, there's a very early speech he made in Berlin in 1934, which is about uh, the general film, the new film, the new German cinema. And there he's as well saying, film critic does not longer exist, which is even in quite an aggressive sentence. And uh, uh, it's uh, what we do is only service uh, and it's quite interesting, of course, because some of those uh, phrases and those keywords, like the service word, which Goebbels literally said, service, uh, we find uh, we find again in our times, because uh, we know, we all know that some media think they should not criticize; uh, they w- they should only do service to the readers. And uh, maybe we should be more careful, and not just in our words, but as well in our thoughts. And we should, of course, value criticism. Here you are studying the films of Germany in the Weimar era, the films of Germany in the war era. Do you see any parallels between those films, those periods, and what's going on today? Yes, I do. One thing is, uh, but you might uh, might want a different answer. Uh, one thing is, of course, uh, we can we can compare the cinema of today with uh, those films, and we can see uh, that uh, in, in aesthetically, in a way, uh, uh, Hitler and the Nazis did win the war. Uh, of course, morally and politically, they lost. But aesthetically, we see the the image language of the Nazis. We see the 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 style of Leni Riefenstahl and as well of Veit Harlan, uh, we can see in many films, European films, but as well American films, 
up to our times. We see it in advertisement movies. We see it in uh, in music video clips. Uh, we can see that uh, in, in German films, of course, uh, the Nazis are always the evil guys, but as well in, in American films. It's quite often uh, the evil is shown in the Nazi uh, image language and the, in the imaging of the Nazis. Look at Darth Vader in Star Wars. He is black like an SS officer. And uh, we have the the skull uh, as a symbol of death, which was used, of course, uh, before the Nazis as well. But the Nazis use it quite popular, and it's uh, in popular cinema uh, in, in a lot of ways used. And the whole this whole iconography of uh, black leather boots, leather coats, and so on. So this is one way where I can see many parallels. The Nazi propaganda, I said, is about telling the truth, but in a different way. It is about changing the truth, manipulating the truth. When we look at our times where we have the debate, how can we trust media? Uh, we have the debate about fake news. Um, I think all these uh, ideas of the Nazis are kind of coming back, and we can see that even democratic states are sometimes using uh, propaganda uh, and and doing propaganda they don't they seem not longer to trust into the sheer truth and investigative journalism uh, used to be more popular in the 70s and 60s than it is today uh, i'm not so sure that our audience uh, and and as well uh, we we journalists that we are really interested in the truth or are we just interested in our truth, or in not even our truth, but in our ideology? Uh, it seems to me that many people want uh, to hear, uh, want to read and to hear uh, what they know before and what they already think is right and wrong. They did not want to be irritated, but truth can be irritating sometimes. And uh, I think that the most it's it's the most honorable task of art to irritate and uh, not uh, to make the world just comfortable for us, to comfort. The Nazis wanted in one way or the other to comfort the audience because it was much easier to spread their message. And we can learn from the Nazi cinema experience that Comfort is not always a good thing. Irritation can be a good thing. As you were asking before as well about the Weimar experience and the Weimar cinema, from Weimar we can as well, uh, we see some parallels. We see in Weimar a democracy in danger. We can see that it can be very fast, that you have a flourishing country. And Germany after the First World War, after the first years of crisis in the mid-20s, was a flourishing country. It was a very vibrant place, and Berlin in the 20s was as popular as the Berlin of today is again, even more maybe. And uh, as I said before, great films were made, but as well great art. We know Bauhaus architecture, we know expressionist and constructivist, later new sobriety, neue Sachlichkeit, we say in Germany, art, uh, which was marvelous. We had Thomas Mann, the writer, which won the Nobel Prize and many more. Uh, but all this was destroyed within within some weeks. So we can see in the general Weimar experience that 
even a flourishing democracy and a very modern society can be destroyed if we are not awake, if, you, if we are not cautious, if we gamble too much and uh, play around with uh, some fools. Uh, for instance, if we bring fools into power just because we want to see what would happen and uh, because we are not aware of the danger of the dangerous things we are doing this is uh, one thing we can learn in uh, in in Weimar and of course if there is an economic crisis uh, this helps to the decline of democratic system Dem democracy is vulnerable because democracy is more complicated than a dictatorship and uh, if we look at the cinema we can see um that that maybe the cinema of the classic times of the old times was better than today because it was not as perfect technical wise but it was marvelous in the fantasies and in the ideas not just the german cinema as well i, I see the scandinavian cinema the italian the hollywood cinema of the great studio times i, I have the impression that in general those uh, times were a much better time for cinema and I cannot see that uh, the genius and the fantasy of that era has just traveled into TV or that, uh, that DVD series are the new cinema. I don't believe that. I think we have lost a certain sense of imaging and of visual art. It, it can come back. I'm not a pessimist. Uh, I, I would just say that uh, artistically and aesthetically, we are not living in the best of times. So what is next for you? Are you going to take on new German cinema post-war? Yes, I want to do that. Uh, I need some money. So maybe if there is an American billionaire listening to this or an oligarch, uh, I would take the money <laughs> and uh, you can you can sponsor a German film. Uh, because in the post-war times, uh, <laughs> the post-war times is very, very interesting because the Nazis are still there and the emigrants and the anti-Nazis are coming back. So there is the clash of the styles and generations. But it has one big disadvantage uh, for making or for financing the film. Hitler is not in it because he's dead. Hitler is only in it as a memory and uh, he's in it because some of the films are, are telling stories about the war times, of course. So the title of this third film uh, would be From Hitler to Fassbinder, because uh, I would like to tell the story of the first 15 years or 20 years after, post, after the war, after 45. And then in the mid-60s, the new, uh, new German cinema uh, began to rise. But this would be another story. I cannot put everything in one film. We will see. As well, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe doing a documentary on what we were just talking about on propaganda. But uh, this would be different as well, and I will need some time for, to, to prepare that. So in general, I have the idea uh, to stay a film critic, but be a filmmaker as well, and to combine those two parallel lives to one life in practice. We will see. Yeah, I was just having a discussion the other day about who in America is going to take that uh, that Riefenstahl mantle, make our next great propaganda films over here, though I think they're already around. I think the decision <laughs> came down that uh, Zack Snyder might be the best with his, uh, <laughs> yeah. his Superman. 
Yeah, Zack Snyder, um, you know that uh, the 300 film is very popular in Germany as well, but it is attacked uh, also quite a lot as being fascist in this way that his body image is uh, totally fascist. Yeah, his admiration for those perfect muscle bodies. And the Spartans, of course, as the Spartans, you know, the Nazis identified with Sparta, not with Athens. Athens was a weak, decadent, liberal democracy. Sparta was an authoritarian, racist state of soldiers. So uh, the Nazis loved Sparta and wanted to become, uh, to, to make Germany great again, to be uh, the Sparta of modernity. It did not work out, luckily. But sometimes Zack Snyder, I like, uh, I think he's, as a filmmaker, he's quite interesting. And even Sucker Punch is a film, very cheesy, very, very cheesy, but interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, greetings to America. I hope you love my film, and buy the DVD, of course, as well as the other film. <laughs> From Caligari to Hitler, then you have two parts of a trilogy, and the third uh, hopefully uh, will come one day.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.